Welcome to a special episode of They Live By Film. My name is Adam Lundy. Just doing a quick introduction here to this really great episode that we put together. We were incredibly lucky to be able to interview James White from Arrow Video. Really fun interview. Such a friendly, intelligent, knowledgeable guy. And I hope you guys enjoy it as much as we enjoyed making it. Thanks. James White, thank you so much for joining the podcast. Oh, my pleasure. Uh, thanks, for, thanks, for, thanks for asking. Yeah, 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 of course. We, we've been around. It's, it's coming up on a year now. Uh, Adam, when, when is a year? Um, I think it was sometime in October last year. So we're getting there. We're getting there. <laughs> we're almost at a year. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, we just sort of are, are collectors and, and big fans of, of kind of classic and international and, and, and independent cinema and uh, started doing this. And then about seven or eight weeks in, we were like, we should just ask some of these labels that we're buying from if they'd be willing to talk to it to a kind of a young podcast. And it's been amazing to think of the people that have said yes, uh, <laughs> including this conversation today. Well, yeah, sure. I mean, it's, it's, it's fun because what we do isn't really the sexy part of the film profession. So, uh, you know, it's, uh, we, we don't get requests from this very often. So when we do, I mean, I think like most people in my position, it's like, yeah, sure. If you're interested, I'd be happy to talk about it. So, uh, absolutely. Well, what you do is, I don't, I don't know a good analogy. It might not be the sexy part in terms of what the public knows, but it's certainly what they notice if it goes wrong. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's, that's one unfortunate part for sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So how? So you got involved with Arrow through Zombie Flesh Eaters or Zombie Two or however you want to kind of you know call it, depending on the market. Uh, how did Arrow think to reach out to you specifically in 2012 to help with that restoration? It was. It's. It's funny because it was an interesting time in my own life because I had actually uh, I'd lived in Britain for a few years. I moved here to the UK from New York in uh, 2000. And the initial jobs that I had hadn't quite worked out. And I ended up uh, uh, working at the British Film Institute and uh, doing the technical work for that label, which was then called BFI DVD. Uh, so this is back in 2002 or so. So uh, as I worked there, and I worked there for nearly a decade, uh, we ended up entering the Blu-ray market. Uh, we brought on former uh, Tartan uh, video producer, Sam Dunn who now is one of the, the heads of Indicator. Uh, so, you know, there's, no yeah, a powerhouse Indicator. That's that's uh, Sam and a couple other of my friends who I used to work with on that label. So, Their Asian yeah, extreme all, line introduced me to Takashi Miike back in like early Oh, Tartan, yeah. Yeah, they were big on that, absolutely. They had a long legacy of that um, before they folded. And uh, we took on a, a, I mean, I knew a couple of people who worked at Tartan. And, uh, so we brought some of that sensibility to the BFI. We launched a flip side line and things like that. And then when I left the BFI, um, I wanted to make some changes. I was looking to sort of focus more specifically on restoration and that sort of thing. Uh, I ended up freelancing for a couple of years. And one of the labels that I freelanced for uh, was Arrow. And I initially just helped look at their masters and give you know my opinions, like what they needed in terms of tweaks and that sort of thing. Because back then, Arrow was a company that was basically putting out body and masters. So they licensed the title and then they would um, 
you know, uh, they put it out, but they wouldn't be doing full scale restoration from top to bottom, going back to fill mill and blah, blah, blah. there was nobody. I mean, Arrow is a very small company and there was no one there who had that kind of experience or anything. Mm-hmm. But when they saw some of the work that I've done with the BFI, uh, some of the work I was doing with Eureka Masters of Cinema around the same time, um, they thought, well, we'd love to do this, but we're not sure how. Maybe you could help us get there. So, you know, I, like I said, I was a freelance. I was in no position to refuse. I was, and I was dead keen on, after 10 years of working on rather kind of canon, canonical, kind of lofty BFI type titles or Masters of Cinema, I had just done Passion of Joan of Arc, Carl Dreyer, for example. You know, I was keen. To, they, they said, do you want to do zombies flesh eaters? Hell yeah, I'd love to do, you know, just a different kind of thing. And yet, the same kind of workflow, you know, you, you still go back to the film elements. Uh, you, you know, you digitize all the, all the film elements, you, uh, you clean it up, take it through various procedures of uh, automated and manual restoration. You're overseeing the grading, you're over, uh, overseeing the, the sound remastering, you know, you're comparing it to previous releases, you know, uh, all that, those kinds of aspects of what was done wrong before or what could be improved. So, you know, it's basically the same science. It's just applied to a genre film in the truest sense of the word. And I found that really exciting. So, uh, so yeah, Zombie Flesh Cheaters was kind of my, uh, you know, my first real uh, uh, job for Arrow. And from then we just, you know, decided let's do more of these. And after about a year of doing that for Arrow, sort of splitting my time freelancing between Masters of Cinema and uh and Arrow, um, Arrow offered me the job. They basically created a position to run restoration for them, and I, did, you know, I said, "Great, let's let's do that." So I did that. I've been with Arrow full time since 2014, and we've just sort of expanded on that original premise, which is to give the uh, the genre cinema that at the time Arrow really focused on. I, I'd say that Arrow has since branched out, and now we handle a lot more cinema classics as well as big studio titles as well as the genre and the horror and the giallo and the you know the cult stuff that we still love and and but all kind of being treated with the same kind of um approach which is you know uh uh, trying to give it the actual the, the the best uh uh truest um most respectable kind of uh definitive presentation that we can you know to show that expertise and that love to a cinema to a film that might be a less loved or less famous work of cinema, but it still needs the same kind of love and respect and, and platform. So, yeah. You could say it's uh, just different, different types of canon films. Uh, yeah, exactly. Well, I think when I was growing up, like, well, growing up, but like, uh, you know, uh, when Criterion was doing their Laserdisc and entered DVD, you know, there was a kind of established canon. You know, you had to watch your Kurosawa, your Ingmar Bergman, your... Your Bunuel, your D.W. Griffith, you know, I mean, Hitchcock, uh, John Ford, whatever, it goes on and on. But the point is, is there was one canon that everybody sort of was brought up to believe yeah. that that's the cinema you need to watch. And I, I think that's fine. And I nothing against that. It's all, you know, still great cinema. But I think that people's tastes and interests have kind of broadened, you know, in the in the decades since. And I think that, you know, uh, a film like, say, Blue Underground did a great UHD of Daughters of Darkness. That's one of my favorite releases of last year. And I think that, uh, you know, that's fantastic that that's getting the same attention that Criterion's, I don't know, whatever they've done lately, uh, the the Fellini box, you know, so it's something yeah. like that, you know. So it's, yeah, uh, yeah I think uh, if there's, there's a, 
cinema is a broad church and there's room for all these things. There's a big population that would claim Valerian Boracek as their as their canon. Yeah. Okay. Well, there you go. Right? Absolutely. And now, and now they've got that release. <laughs> and I mean, I listened to. I haven't listened to all your shows. So I'm sorry to say, but I've listened to a couple, and uh, I listened to your Vinegar Syndrome uh, uh, interview, and that was great. Uh, but I don't. I, I haven't really worked with him. But we have. We do work with Vinegar Syndrome. They help restore a few of our titles on them and some of the horror stuff that we do uh, because they've got incredible access to certain collections, both within their own archive, as well as just the connections, historical connections they have with like New York and New Jersey and, yeah, East Coast, yeah. uh, you know, lost forgotten collections of material. So they really come in handy, but they're, they're doing the Lord's work when it comes to, you know, uh, rescuing those films that time forgot and giving them incredible releases. So. Yeah. Well, uh, Adam and Zachary, all okay if I ask one more question before you jump in? Yeah. I got, I got the thumbs up. So I guess, you know, there's there's an interesting statement you made. Uh, I, I read, I, I, I forget which magazine, apologies, but I found a quote you said. Um, when you were talking about restoration, you kind of got into some of the details. So you said, you know, that you, a combination of Pixar restoration to improve Typical issues like dirt, light scratches, picture instability, density fluctuation, flicker, and then further manual frame-by-frame -frame restoration is often needed more serious issues like heavy scratches, chemical damage, torn frames, film wraps, and the like. So that was the quote. Um, yeah, that sounds I'm, like me. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm curious, you know, this is a piece where it, to, to the extent that you can kind of go into a little bit of detail in there, don't worry about getting too geeky. Like, I think the point is, like there, there's a whole side of that. I, I understand reading that. I have a picture of kind of what that is, but I would love to hear from you just like when the, when the, when the negatives, or if you have to use like film, whatever, when it actually has these elements on there, what does that mean to go fix that digitally? Like, are you actually like coloring it? Like, like what does that actually mean to fix that digitally? Yeah, sure. I, I could talk a bit about the process. I mean, what you need to, bear in mind is that every film has a different history in terms of its distribution, in terms of its materials and how they were looked after, where were they kept, where they looked after properly, or when were they kept in humidity and temperature controlled vaults, in uh, quality cans, where they, you know, where they uh, inspected regularly, where they, uh, you know, where they backed up, where they, I mean, or where they did the producer of the film keep in his garage for like, you know, uh, 30 years gathering dust or, you know, in a Texas summer being uh, subjected to heat, you know, or sitting on a radiator somewhere. I mean, you, 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 it's, you, you see all stories and all possibilities. So you never know when you're licensing a film, when you're looking to restore something, what the materials were subjected to. And that is basically uh, what they were subjected to will spell what challenges you have ahead. So every film's a little bit different. Now I would say that generally big studio films, films we license from Universal or MGM or whatnot, they, we don't have much to fear there because they have a history of looking after and keeping those elements in the house in proper conditions. But with a lot more of the independent uh, films or some of the smaller kind of cult or genre films, some of the titles we get from Italy, where films may have changed hands in terms of their ownership and all those, you know, they have complex histories. And uh, what we're trying to do, first of all, is find the best existing elements that we can access. So, you know, when you think about the photochemical printing chain, um, you 
want the original camera nag, the, the, the film that went through the camera as your ideal. You know, that's okay. what you're shooting for. So that's step one. But what if that negative has been destroyed, such as the case in, uh, I don't know, a number of horror titles that, you know, after they, they just never kept track of it or just damaged or lost or they just junked it. I mean, who knows what happened to the original 16 mil neg of Last House on the Left? Nobody. Now that Wes Craven's gone, we'll never know. You know, there's all these myths about it. But some people say in a rage, you put it in a fireplace or something. I mean, I doubt that. Why would you do that? But the, the, the point is, is that these, these are often questions that will never get answered. So you move on to the next best thing. So in the case of Last House on the Left, um, MGM had a 35 mil blow up element. That means something that was originally, uh, they took the 16 mil and then optically made a 35 element. So blown up to 35 size which means that you're blowing it up. So it's losing a bit of that original 16 mil neg grain detail. Uh, it's uh, it's a, a generation down in the printing chain. So when you're talking about photochemical, every subsequent generation you go down is a loss of quality. So, okay. you know, if you go to an IN, you go to IP, maybe the IP is gone. In that case, maybe an IN is your next thing, an interneg or a dupe neg. Uh, or a fine grain if it's a black and white element. I mean, any of these kinds of things in the photochemical printing chain that were made at the time uh, are things, are source materials that maybe turn out to be your only option. Mm. So you might find that after doing a thorough search, you're left with something that's sort of midway between the negative print, which is often the case for a lot of these genre films. What you don't want, sort of worst case scenario, is a battered old theatrical print that's been run thousands of times and looks it. You know, because but in some cases, that's it. That is all that's left or at least all that anyone can find that had anything to do with the picture and knows anything about the distribution history or lab storage history or anything. So, you know, in all cases, you're looking for the best, but you sometimes you have to settle for midway. And when you don't have some beautifully preserved, pristine negative, then your restoration choices have to fall in line with what's realistic for that element. Um, when I talk about the different things, first you're scanning the film. So you're, if you're working from neg, I prefer to work in 4K at that level because, you know, you've got the original negative. Uh, you've got this one opportunity to scan it in the best possible way. The most important thing you can get is the best quality scan starting point you can. Um, after that, you can do the work in 2K if you're only going Blu-ray or HD or whatever. Uh, the important thing is to start out at the highest possible quality from that filament. And that's not just for the project that we're doing, but that's for the sake of the film. If that mm -hmm. negative disappears tomorrow, for whatever reason, or the warehouse has a fire or something and that's lost, then at least I know that we scanned it in 4K. So there's that to preserve as well for future. So I'm not just thinking about our immediate era release. I'm thinking about the legacy and preservation of the film itself. Because I'm, I have to think, I'm a, it's a... Um, it, you know, it, I'm privileged to be able to source this material. I'm privileged to have it in my presence and I want to do right by it. You know, I want to do the responsible thing. And what I want to do is if our rights elapse or something and somebody else picks up, picks up this release, for the, then, you know, if I can, they can have our 4K scans rather than, you know, take a chance at disturbing the, the negative again or have anything go wrong with it. So the best thing for a neg is just to be kept in the lab, sorry, kept in the vault 
in the proper conditions and have us touch it as little as possible. And that'll, you know, it'll last longest that way. So, so yeah, there's that. Once we have the digitized scan, uh, we can see what we're dealing with. And uh, what we're often dealing with are, you know, general kind of restoration issues like light scratches or instability, which is, you know, a, a, you know bumpy, shaky image caused okay. either by warping or that sort of, the, the, you know, that sort of thing that some goes through. Um, we might be dealing with uh, uh, splice damages or, um, you know, when talking about things like uh, vinegar syndrome, you know, uh, color fading and that sort of thing, which afflicts acetate films. Um, you know, it's, uh, there's, there's a whole uh, gamut, but then you have serious uh, restoration issues where the film itself is at risk of just rotting in the can. You know, we had a restoration done on Nightmare City, the Umberto Lindsay done a few years ago. And the scans were fine until we got to like the third reel. And then we discovered that the film was rotting. It was literally rotting in the can. Moisture had entered the can at some point. And, you know, it wasn't taken out and inspected regularly by the people who, who owned it. And for that reason, you had this intense color fading, strobing, rotting you know the film it was like the film material was actually shedding in the can over time and you had this thing where the moisture had affected one part of the of the the entire reel so every time the reel went around like it had a projector it had this awful kind of strobing ghastly effect and when you have something like that you can you you can use i mean modern tools that gets better and better every year new tools and technology far advanced in the last 20 years or so, but there are still limits to what we can do, especially if we don't have, say, a million dollars to throw at this thing. And no one's going to give me a million dollars to restore, you know, Nightmare City. It's not going to happen. So um, you you debate whether it's worth it or not. But the point is, is that we have to kind of live with certain limits the best we can achieve. And with that particular we restored it as best we could using a combination of those manual frame by frame when i say manual i mean you're you're approaching every frame of the film and doing actual physical repairs via wacom tablet via your software you're painting out you know hand by hand or you're using say a portion of this frame that precedes it to paint over and, and uh, you know, cover up some damage that's in a specific range. Usually these are frame-specific damages, you know, uh, issues, frame-specific instances of damage. Whereas more manual kinds of things might look for little bits of dirt, little, sorry, when more automated things look for like little bits of dirt, little bits of scratches, and those are good at kind of just covering those up. But the, but the real frame-by-frame stuff um, is, is the stuff that really takes time. And you need to be careful because, you know, these tools are very, po- very powerful. And if you don't approach it with the right kind of care and caution, you can very easily create what are called digital artifacts. So things that weren't there, but now are there, thanks to your handiwork, because you did a botched job with the cleanup, you know, uh, you might have uh, covered up, some, you know, you're, you're, you're painting out what you think is dirt and it's, it's actually, you know, say insects flying in the image or, uh, you know, it, you, so you need to approach it sort of under a microscope and look at every frame very carefully before you, you know, you do anything. Um, I was just going to say the, in the case of Nightmare City, you know, we basically threw up our hands and said, this is the best it's going to go. We could have gone back and say, can we use 
a different element for this part of the film or a different reel. But the uh, but in that case, the only other element was some awful sort of 35 dupe nag that was really, really soft and battered old prints. And we just said, you know, this is a good way to show people the limits of what restoration can do and the urgency of why preservation is so important. So we basically put it out there. And if you watch our Nightmare City uh, Blu-ray, you'll see the reel I'm talking about. And, you know, you'll see the damage. I mean, it's tempered down a little bit. We were able to improve it a bit, but it's still there. And uh, we included some sort of contextual extras that explained why we made the decisions we did to kind of show it warts and all rather than try to, you know, cover it up. So, yeah, I mean, you know, the, the job, it, uh, the work we do, like I say, there are new ways to approach these challenges. Um, each time we're constantly learning new ways to deal with it, but there are still limits. You know, if you have a, an element that has just been treated awful, you know, just terribly, um, and, and we had that a little bit on our recent Bill Rebane set. Say, so if you uh, if you watch Monsters of Go Go, for example, that's the one I was going to ask about. Oh yeah, that's uh, that's sort of my prime candidate this year for sort of worst looking elements I saw this year <laughs> that we had. A, but it was still, you know, the best we could find. And uh, it's uh, but it's rough. It's very rough, and you have to be a fan to kind of, you know, you just have to accept the fact that this is. These are the films. The, the thing I would just add to that is we are big film heads. I am. I, I you know, came up in working for film labs, film archives, and, uh, and, and then labels. So my background is film in my hands, celluloid, you know, and the, the issues that you deal with in a physical way. So I love film grain. I love the texture. I love the feel of film. I like seeing a print in the cinema. I like the sound of a projector. I want our film presentations to have that feeling. So, you know, it's, uh, I think when you have a film like Monster A Go-Go, you know, it's going to look like a train wreck, whether you're looking at it in a projector or you're looking at it on our Blu-ray, but it's a beautiful, very filmic train wreck, you know? And uh, I think you just sort of have to have a love for the, the, the feel of cinema in that way to appreciate that. Um, well, I have, I have a hundred more questions that I wrote down, but I want to get Adam and, and Zach. What, uh, what what's on your mind, with James? Here on the line. Uh, well, you kind of inadvertently answered it in a way, but I'm just sort of curious. Oh, uh, I'm, 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 a, I'm a big Arrow fan, and um, probably up there with Criterion as my favorite label, mainly because oh. of the, the diversity. You know, not many labels I can go get a film noir and also get a schlocky horror film. Not many labels I can get both. So. Uh, I, we got a lot of we got a lot of schlock. We got a lot. Yeah, of <laughs> we have a lot of good stuff with it. Like my first my first arrow buy was a few years ago with Bicycle Thieves, the original release oh, yeah. rather than the re-release. So that was my first time I'd ever heard of Arrow. So obviously I knew Arrow Academy before I'd even I, I knew the Arrow video stuff. Um, right. But um, that's kind of what leads me to my question because I probably know the answer now that you've just described the processes you go through. But due to my ignorance with the process, I had always assumed you know, restoring like a Carpenter film is going to be easier than maybe a film from the 30s or 40s because it's it's a newer print. So would I be right in saying now that that's actually not the case? It's very much a case-by-case -case basis. It, it is a case-by-case -case basis. I'd say that, you know, I mean, we don't have that many films from the 30s and we have a few in our Academy line. Um, I'd yeah. say in the 30s, definitely the 40s, like we've done a few of the, you know, 40s era Hollywood films from licenses that we've done for Universal and MGM. But 
I would love to do more 30s and, and uh, even silent cinema, which we haven't really entered into with Arrow Video. But it's, um, I, I mean, it's a case by case basis. When you when you think about 30s, you think of like classic Hollywood or classic British, you know, Hitchcock and screwball comedy, and you know, all the old, you know, great genres of uh, cinema. And you know, those are very much the uh, the mainstays of like Hollywood studios and stuff. So it really depends on them and how they retained those originals. Some didn't, you know, there are, unfortunately, there are stories of some studios naming no names who basically just dumped all their negatives once they'd made sort of uh, backup um, intermediates. They just said, what do we need these for? They're just taking up space. Let's just jump. And, uh, you know, I mean, I, that's that's a horrible thought to me, but film preservation, uh, film restoration, absolutely. But even film preservation, the idea that these things might have value in years to come uh, is a relatively new concept, you know, and it's the work of people, you know, in places like the BFI or, the, or uh, you know, down in the, uh, um, Cinematheque Francais or other archives around the world who kind of, you know, uh, push forward this idea that no, these things are worth saving, you know, and uh, it's uh, the work, you know, efforts by Scorsese and people like that to kind of, you know, get people thinking about that. But, but really, I mean, we're lucky to have what's there. You know, I mean, when you, when you read things like what, 60, 70% of silent cinema is gone forever. I mean, who knows what the actual figure is, but there are estimates around that, that size. That's, you know, jaw dropping, but I think, well, at least we got 30% then, you know, because uh, it very could be, it very easily could have been completely gone. Um, so, yeah, I mean, just to get back to your question, I think that, you know, again, it all comes down to what that film material was subjected to. And while the age of a film definitely plays into what your options might be as far as access to material, what materials have been kept, that sort of thing. If they were kept in, if the best materials for any film have been kept in climate controlled, humidity controlled, proper environments, looked after properly, they can last for hundreds of years. But if a genre film from 1975 that was shown as the bottom bill of a drive-in or whatever, and the neg is you know, gone or, you know, the, the, the lab that was holding the materials was closed down and nothing, no, nobody knows what happened with that material. And all you've got is a print that's been run thousands of times. That's going to be a much bigger challenge. So it really is a, on a case by case basis. It really comes down. I mean, in some cases, um, um, the most famous films are sometimes the, the worst offenders because they uh, a film that's say been cut recut into director's cuts many times or you know brought in you know they may have gone back to those original elements five or six times and actually cut the negative and recut it and put in inserts or all these various things i mean star wars the negative i don't know this but i've heard horror stories about the shape of that material because lucas kept going back and fiddling with it you know, the more you the more you bother that material, the more you subject it to things, the more there are chances that things could get damaged, the more you're subjecting it to the elements, just running it over, you know, uh, 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 tools and things. And, and the more that material gets lost, like some frames might just be lost for that forever and need to be rebuilt digitally from prints or whatever. But it's so but another film from 1977 that doesn't have the legacy that Star Wars does, but was a studio film might be in absolutely pristine shape just because 
not that many people are familiar with it. So again, it, it really comes down to a case-by-case -case basis. Where does, uh, where does Nico Mastarakis fit on that spectrum of like independent people oh, Nico. themselves as classic auteurs? Wow, we love Nico. I, I gotta say, I, 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 Nico is uh, he's an acquired taste. He's, uh, you have to admire his output. I don't even know how many films he's, he's done. I know that there are still some we haven't put out, and I know that uh, uh, there are some that we may. It's it's still sort of up in the pipeline. Um, but my favorite of his is still Island of Death. I think yeah. Island of Death is just it's just a hoot, you know. It's it's just, and I guess it was I thought it was his first film, but I guess the one we recently put out, Death Has Blue Eyes. He actually shot that before, but only by a few months or something. Okay. So they. You know, I kind of think of them as sort of a, a you know, a, a, a duo of uh, of films that he, uh, you know, subjected the the to uh, to people at the time. I just think Island of Death is just so morbidly fascinating and grotesque and I mean, the guy has sex with a, a goat midway through the film uh, and then slits its throat out of shame or what? I don't know. But just who but, who but who yeah. but Island of Death. Oh, okay. Okay. And it's just these these uh, these these this couple that just get together and just have sex and kill people and rape goats and do other forms of <laughs> disgusting behavior. And and then the big, I mean, I sorry, I don't want to do, do any spoilers here, but I think it's revealed at least midway through the film is that they're brother and sister. Yeah. So that's like the the final incestuous like you know big reveal of the film that's supposed to be like shocking. But by the time you get to that reveal, it's like. Well, they already had sex with a goat. I mean, where where do you go from this? <laughs> it's, not that so much it's, uh, <laughs> it's just a truly it's a it's a nasty piece of work that Nico admitted he made to just get his foot in the door and be shocking. And uh, I think he 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 saw Texas Chainsaw Massacre and like this was his response to that. Uh, so you know you gotta you gotta admire that. Um, I don't know what was your question about Nico exactly. <laughs> No, so I so just really so, so I saw Island of Death and then I've seen Zero Boys and then uh, I'm I'm just working up to some of his other stuff in in, in Arrow's collection. But um, I was just curious, like, <laughs> sorry, that's a good. What's your question? Um, I was curious. You know, you talk about Bill Rabane, like not necessarily thinking about like how to keep his prints, right? But I just yeah. have to imagine that somebody like Nico would have been uh, somewhat more self-aware and viewed himself as an auteur. And I'm, I'm imagining those prints were in better condition. Yes, Nico is <laughs> Nico's biggest fan is Nico. So yeah. he's a, he's a, <laughs> so he, I think you know he has uh, he's he's a huge fan of his work. Um, <laughs> and I I think he does. I, I'm not sure how. I don't know what his current system is as far as um, archiving his work. But I think he actually has given some thought to it. Um, especially in recent years where he's been able to license a lot of his catalog for Blu-ray and stuff. So, yeah, I don't think it's, I think it's a bit scattered. I think it's, it's not all in the same place. Um, recently, he's been looking after his own restoration using some lab in Greece who did the work for Death Has Blue Eyes. So we can't take any credit or blame for that one. But it's, uh, <laughs> depends on your opinion of Death Has Blue Eyes. But um, it's, uh, but yeah, no, I, he, he's clearly, I think, Unlike William Griffay or Bill Rabane, where you're kind of going to all, all over the place, deep, dark places to find, try to find the scraps of these films and piece together sometimes jigsaw puzzle-like 
the best versions that you can. Like, oh, well, reel five of this print is, is, is great, but the rest is completely torn up. Or, you know, you, you know, half of real one is missing from this inner pause. So you're having to substitute some 16 mil reduction or something. I mean, with, with, with films like, I think we kind of started this, um, this approach when we did um, uh, Herschel Gordon Lewis, that massive set from a few years ago. And you could re- like Herschel Gordon Lewis, it's actually a documented fact. He dumped his negatives for like half his films. So what you have is half the films that we're able to access the negs that he didn't destroy look great, you know, um, with a with a few caveats like one reel might be missing or you know something that this that and the other. But uh, but the ones that the negs are dumped, you just have to settle for whatever shit you can find. Oh. And uh, sometimes it was really, yeah, pretty yeah, uh, pretty manky. Um, you know, William Griffith, same sort of case. And and when you see like the the big sets that uh is it Severin who did the uh the Adamson book the Adamson set from my uh, last year and the uh oh god what's it did yeah I mean it's just these are labors of love where you're just trying to present these you're trying to save these really you know from elements that may not belong to this world they may be vinegar syndroming hard you might take the can the film out of the can and the smell will just make you hit the floor because these wow. things are really dissolving and it's a matter of just, you know, urgency to get these things digitized and transferred and, and out there in the best way possible before they, before the films just collapse on you. So, yeah. Wow. I, I did actually have a question about the H.G. Lewis set now that, you, now that you kind of brought it up. So Arrow is, of all the labels I've kind of seen, Arrow seems to be willing to take on these very ambitious box sets, right? Uh, and you see other companies kind of getting into it a little bit, uh, but it feels like that that H.G. Lewis and the Gamma Red, the limited edition, sitting next to each other on a shelf are just these like very ambitious sets. So I'm wondering, yeah. do you like, you know, first of all, like, are, are they, are y'all going to keep doing that? And I guess, second of all, how is that for you? <laughs> do you, do you kind of cry <laughs> a little bit when you get word that you're about to go do something like this? Well, you've probably heard the word that we're doing a big Shaw Brothers set. One of two, actually. Um, these are. I've got one uh, pre-order. So how many are coming out? Two. Two two volumes. Sorry, we have uh, maybe that's breaking protocol, but we called this volume one done. for a reason. So uh, I can say that it, there will at least be one more volume, which will be <laughs> you know next next year sometime. Uh, I can't say what films are on it because I'm not allowed to do that. But if you notice what films are on volume one, the films are basically kind of following chronological order. So I know know a lot of people were like, why isn't 36 Chambers on this? Well, look at the chronology, you know, and this is volume one. So be patient. You know, um, the uh, the I mean, just to talk about the Celestial work with Celestial's the company in uh, Hong Kong that owns the rights to all the Shaw Brothers catalog. Um, that's been a long time coming, but it has been a trail of tears just in terms of the um, complexity in getting the elements out of the Hong Kong National Archive because they have a national archive system that has its own sort of protocol in terms of how it views deadlines. And, you know, they're not going to move quickly for anybody. And uh trying to sort of because we're we're partnered with uh, imagine Richard Vata who are doing who have um, a Hong Kong facility for scanning 
all the elements there. So it's working with a lab there, it's working with them in Bologna, and then we're doing all our grading here with a lab in uh, that we work with called Restore here in London, because we like to supervise all our own grading. So it's a multi-layered, multi-tiered, very complex system, which is complex enough if we were just working on one film. But when you're working with, say, 30, it's uh, it's it can be exhausting. It can be a bit of minefield of possible errors. And when you're dealing with both talking to Italy on one side and Hong Kong on the other, there's so much information that can be misconstrued or misunderstood. And it's just important for me as sort of project manager or something like this, that I just try to keep it organized. If not, you know, I mean, in my own head, for one thing, it's hard enough, but just to make sure everybody involved is on the same page. Because the one thing about these big box sets is they are, um, they're not just me. There are a lot of people involved in these and they all need to be on track and informed and, and, and knowledgeable about what their part of the process is. And with me, I'm just keeping an eye on budget. I'm keeping an eye on our deadlines and I'm making sure that we're doing all the films right, that the workflow is being done right, that the films are looking and sounding as they should. And, you know, one thing about Arrow is we try to put out every version imaginable of a film. So a film like, uh, like any of the titles on our Shaw Brothers set will have come out in Cantonese, may have come out in Mandarin, as well as English. So we need to make sure that we're releasing all of those variations and all those languages and all those titles, front and end titles and stuff. So, uh, so yeah, and um, with, a, with a film like Chinatown Kid, for example, it's an interesting case because Chinatown Kid was originally two hours. And it was released in America and the States and in, 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 in Britain. And, uh, and then at some point, years later, uh, Celestial saw fit to cut it down to about 90 minutes. And that's been the preferred version of Chinatown Kids since that you've been getting on DVD. And, um, I don't think it's ever been on Blu-ray. But the point is, is that it's 30 minutes. That's like Magnificent Ambersons in terms of reduction from its yeah, original yeah. to its you know, to its compromised uh, release. So, you know, we went out of our way to comb the Hong Kong bolts and say, can you please look for anything that meets this length? So we had them measuring reels. We had them comparing uh, different print. And, and unfortunately, the neg itself was cut down to that, uh, that 90 minute length. But what we found is a second generation element that was a bit worn, color was faded, a bit warped in places. And you know, there's a lot to fix there, but we did find the original full two two plus hour life thing. So we're we're happy that we're going to be able to present that on our oh. on our set. So yeah, it's uh, you know, uh, these are the challenges we set for ourselves because I think being Arrow, people expect us to be comprehensive. People expect us to go the extra mile. And if there was a TV cut that was different, or if there was a you know a, a director's cut or anything, we need to include it all. You know, and uh, and we need to restore it all from the best you know materials that we can. So two, two things come to mind when you say that the 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 TV cut of Battles Without Honor and Humanity, the one that kind of like put them all together. Yeah, uh, yeah. I was I was really like happy to see that when I when I picked up that box set. Although I think it totally ruined the film, it was still really cool to see. Uh, yeah, it's sort of like the, when uh, when Coppola put his Godfather like one and two together and like took out all the different flashback order of Godfather 2. We just put all of half of Godfather 2 at the front. I, I hate it. 
is an interesting experiment, but it totally ruins the flow of, exactly. of those films. So, okay. yeah, it's an interesting. I mean, we didn't work on battles. Uh, that was all done in Japan without our input, but it's uh, okay. but they're great films, really interesting, you know, classics. Oh, yeah. And then on the other end of the spectrum is, uh, I think, is, is it Bloodbath? It has like four editions, four versions. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, Bloodbath. And it's still unclear whether more than 50 people may have seen most of those versions because the uh, the records are crazy. We were dealing with, you know, this film that Roger Corman had seen called Operation Titian, you know, and he and maybe five other people and decided, I'm going to put American voices on this and shoot some footage around, you know, uh, around the beaches in Los Angeles and just make this new kind of zombie movie. And he did that. And then he decided, like, let's hire Jack Hill who hadn't yet become the director that he's known to Switchblade Sisters and Coffee and Foxy Brown and stuff. But let's get young Jack Hill in here to oversee. And then Jack Hill did his for it. And then they hired some other director. Oh, we didn't really like that. Let's move this in a more kind of uh, monster movie kind of direction and release it as something else. And by by its, you know, by the, by the time he'd gotten tired of playing with this movie, it had had four full incarnations, different films all of which are significantly different in tone and approach and sort, but it's it's like a masterclass of just making the most out of just some footage you found. You know, as a as a film, none of them are any good. You know, none, <laughs> none of them are none of them are even, you know, I don't I'm not sure if even one but but just watching from like a film student, like just a historical and watching what Roger Corman did and how we approach this kind of stuff it's just so interesting so yeah. i think i really love that release i'm not sure if anyone's bothered to watch all the two teachers in full but i had to so i uh you know <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's a that's a crazy one i suppose another thing that could come up during the process um i suppose obviously when you're dealing with sort of newer films would be like do you often have to sort of liaise with maybe like the directors who originally made them yeah, and actually, it, that brings me. We, we liaised with Jack Hill, who thankfully was was happy to help us out with uh, Pit Stop, that oh, yeah. uh, that film that we did a few years ago about uh, drag racing and stuff. Um, and he's great. Jack Hill was uh, such a terrific, underrated director. I mean, he's, he's you know, he's if you've seen Coffee or Switchblade Sisters stuff, you you know what I'm talking about. But uh, I'm a manager of those. Sorry, Spider Baby. Spider Baby. I think Spider Baby is the first one that we released in his. I think they released that before I joined Arrow, but that's a great release. Yeah. Um, yes, we do, and uh, and I love that. That's one of the parts I've really been missing over this pandemic period because we're all still sort of working remotely via satellites overall around the world. So we haven't been able to sit in a in a grading suite with a director for a long time, but I really always look forward to that. And I mean, it's given me the opportunity to, to work with people like Terry Gilliam or uh, uh, um, uh, we've worked with uh, lots of genre directors, lots of DOPs. Um, Terry Gilliam, I bring up just because he's sort of the ideal director to work with. We've done uh, Time Bandits, we've done Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, and we've done 12 Monkeys with him. And he's just, He's great because he loves the process. He loves to sit there and order his lunch and just enjoy like being immersed in his film again and pick up on things that he missed the first time. And I mean, where it gets a little odd and where it gets a little awkward is if you have directors who 
approach the restoration process as a means of fixing or improving on something that they were never happy with or the feeling like, well, this is no longer relevant. So let's change a lot of this. Let's change the grading and make it somehow more modern or something. It doesn't come up very often, but it does sometimes. And we really try to kind of push back against that, you know, because to me, that's not the point of restoration. Um, you know, we've dealt with a few directors who have just decided, no, this is how I want to go. This is the way I want my film to look. And that's always a little bit, you sort of, you know, you stand your ground, but ultimately they're the director and they're giving you an audience and you can't really go against their wishes, but you try to present an argument. Sometimes you say, well, listen, this is great. What you're trying to do here, this is terrific. But how about we we put both versions on our release? We'll put your new you know, Neo version, whatever. And we'll also, for the historians, you know, for those who really want to see what it came out originally, we'll do that too, you know? And, uh, and we, you know, it costs more for us to do that way, but I think that with a restoration, we really have a responsibility to how that film was originally looked and sounded. And uh, if we don't do that, then I don't think we're doing our job properly. So, yeah, having directors, having DOPs, having that kind of talent in the room. I mean, I, there's one... Um, DOP I loved working with, which was for when we did Ronan a few years ago. Um, we worked with Robert Frace, and he's French, so I'm mispronouncing his last name badly. But um, he was responsible, I wouldn't say single-handedly, but he was a huge um, uh, contributor to the films of like the Emmanuel films, all those Sylvia Crystal softcore French erotic films in the 70s. So he was the guy who kind of said, hey, let's put this nylon stocking on a lens. Let's rub some Vaseline on here. Let's make this all, you know, all those kinds of erotic treatments, the gauzy kind of photography and everything. He, that was his namesake. That was what he pioneered. So when John Frankenheimer said, hey, I'm in France shooting this action movie. Uh, you come recommended. Do you want to shoot this with me? He was so happy to just, yes, I could shoot cars, you know, driving around Paris. I, you know, no sex scenes in this movie. No, nothing. Let's do it, please. And uh, his sort of, his stories of working with Frankenheimer and his joy of working sort of outside his comfort zone and doing something really epic and exciting like that was just, uh, was great to kind of, you know, you're, you're with somebody like that who worked on the film, worked with the director, worked with the actors and the crew for, you're, you know, you're, you're spending a week, sometimes two weeks with them. You're hearing every story that uh, you know it's 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 such a privilege to be in that uh, that audience with them while you're working together to make this film treatment defended so yeah just to um just to ask you something just completely unrelated to anything you've worked on but it's something that you mentioned in passing there just with when it comes to you know filmmakers wanting to change things it's something that we've asked a few people uh, who are involved <laughs> in restoration you probably know what i'm going to ask about your opinion on the world of Wong Kar Wai What's your opinion on what he did with that? I would have made this, I mean, listen, I'm obviously we're really good, good friends with Criteria, Fumiko mm -hmm. and Lee and Peter Becker and, and all those guys, Angie and Kim, his son. I mean, we go way back and we work together on a lot of stuff. And I, I can understand that they didn't really have much of a choice there. Um, and Wong Kar Wai is clearly a film artist who wants his films to look a certain way. I'm not convinced by some of those presentations, 100%. I kind of feel like while it's a great set and it has great historical value and it's great to have those films in such a beautifully packaged kind of, you know, release, 
if it were completely up to me, I would have opted to say, okay, Wong Kar Wai's made this new version that he's calling the 2021 version. Let's include the old one too, you know, and uh, for matters of comparison, historical, you know, it, it would have been great to just have both just to, you know, be able to access because the unfortunate um, result of when these significant changes are made is that for new audiences, that's the only version they know. That's the only version they see. And those older versions, those historically accurate versions are kind of lost, you know, and uh, and that's, you know, I mean, in a much bigger sense, that's what's happened with Star Wars and films like that is that, you know, those of us who saw the film back in 1977, you know, uh, would like to see a version that properly replicates that original experience, you know, without all the extra stuff. Um, so, yeah, I think that, the Wong Kar Wai release is just sort of the latest in what was probably a really big challenge for Criterion in the, in terms of how to balance your relationship with the director and do exactly as he wanted. And I'm sure that, you know, with all these things, when you're working with the original talent, some compromises have to be made. It's, it's not quite the release I wanted it to be personally, but it's still got a lot of great things in it. And, uh, you know, I picked one up for that purpose just because I love the filmmaker, you know, and I love the films. Um, I'm just not getting rid of my old versions either. So yeah, I suppose it's a trouble when they when they go out of print. <laughs> you want yeah. to you want the original. Like Chung King Express is one of my favorite films. Oh, um, it's great! It's great. Uh, I mean, love it, love it you know, and, but but we're faced with. I mean, we don't always win these battles. You know, we uh, yeah. we have to compromise too. I mean, I without naming names, but we put out a film a couple of years ago uh, by a famous Hollywood director. Um, I won't tell you the title, but I'll tell you it rhymes with boozing. And uh, it's uh, his his reputation as somebody who has who's a bit difficult, a bit demanding. It sort of preceded him anyway, so we were anticipating that. But we were just sort of he he clearly had an idea of how he wanted to go with the film, and we didn't always agree about that, and we didn't really have much say. We didn't really, you know, our arguments didn't really carry much water because ultimately. Uh, he was going to do what he was going to do, or he wasn't going to play ball at all. So it's just sometimes you're you're faced with that situation, and it's never great. But it's uh, you know you you try to put out the best release you can. You know, yeah, and I suppose like, you get to the you get to the point where you have to consider cutting stuff. Like I, I won't name names, but obviously there's an Arrow release coming up that I saw. You had to cut something from a special feature. There was an indicator release that was coming up that they've cut all together. So I suppose is that a yes? Uh, there was it rhymes with yeah, prune. <laughs> yeah, I think I read that you had to cut a special feature. Um, we not. did, and I I never really had anything to do with special. But once I finished the film, the the feature yeah. film, none of the extras, I hand that off and I move on to the next thing. So yeah. I wasn't involved in that decision, but I think it had to do more with timing. The extra feature that we wanted wanted to include, had planned to include, just wasn't going to be ready in time, and it would meant delaying our release by several months possibly, and we just. Did, we're not prepared to do that. So something that was originally promised or planned by a certain date, you know, if it had been ready and, you know, we'd have loved to include it. But uh, I think that was a that was a difficult decision, but one that ultimately I don't think Arrow had much choice about. You know, it's just, you know, if we delay the release by another six months, that's not really an option. You know, we want to get this yeah. out soon. We've already announced it and everything. So makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. It's but you know, I mean, as we haven't talked about this much, but entering like 4K and UHD and all the the complexities that brings in, I mean, 
you know, that's been a learning curve as well. So it's uh, in terms of scheduling, you have to get everything done uh, way before the release comes out. Um, the packaging, the encoding, the uh, the replication, all the QC work that needs to go into it. And then you find there are still issues that you're learning about. You know, like uh, we recently had an issue on our first pressing of Donnie Darko where some players would, uh, would uh, uh, some, some of the content, I think in one of the film, one of the versions, I think theatrical cut, uh, if you had a Panasonic player, certain Panasonic, it wouldn't play right for you. Um, Frame so rate had, or something, wasn't it? I mean, it was, yeah, it was something, it was, it was making it, I don't know, it was, uh, I think it was one or, uh, it was a couple of issues. In any case, that was down to the encode, which was done, and the fact that nobody picked up on it because nobody happened to have that kind of player during the QC process. But it had never been an issue before. So it's the kind of thing where, you know, you you uh, you learn from it and you move on and you certainly um, adapt your workflow and your QC process to uh, to make sure things like this don't happen again. But we're all human. You know, we make mistakes. We, uh, we you know, screw ups happen. And when we're working with new technology, particularly UHD, um, it's uh, these things come up and we just try to deal with them as best we can. I suppose when it comes to 4K, you, you probably have to be very picky and choosy about what you can even put onto 4K based on the sort of elements that are available. Not, like not every film is going to have the availability to do it. No, well, I mean, we could do a 4K scan of Monster Go Go, you know, if we wanted to, but it wouldn't. <laughs> it would, doesn't really merit putting out on UHD. The, mm. the the fact is is that going UHD and the reason that um, you know um, some people think we sort of dragged our feet entering into it. Um, is that these things are very costly. Uh, they, the price of not just completing restorations and doing HDR grades and the work that I do, but just the overall cost of, of uh, packaging and encoding and replication is way more than it was for Blu-ray. So we need to, you know, we need to be cautious. We need to feel like um, we have an audience that wants this, that will pay for this, that will, you know, and, you know, it was a gamble, but I think it's 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 already shown um, that it's it's done really well for us. So it's been really encouraging. You know, people you know buying our UHDs and asking us to do more titles. Um, so I think that our UHD slate is definitely broadening. We're considering more and more titles that maybe a year ago wouldn't have even been up for consideration. Like right now, we've been concentrating on you know big studio titles uh, like Tremors and things like that, but also you know, King of New York, smaller, you know, genre titles have done really well. But, um, you know, we've been bringing out the Dario Argento stuff that we did on Blu-ray a few years before. And it's been great to revisit that and seem like, oh, wow, well, we can do this so much better now, you know, going through this new workflow in 4K and with the HDR grading and what we can do there. It's, um, it's great. But I mean, now, does that mean that we should think about maybe widening going back to some other Jalo or Italian titles, like some of the Bava stuff, that sort of thing? You know, if there's an audience that we can count on to 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 buy that stuff and want this stuff in this format, then absolutely. You know, I mean, look at the stuff that Vinegar Syndrome is doing in 4K UHD. It's terrific. You know, it's great. It, it It's, uh, you know, I think they did their, you know, their first of a couple of, uh, of uh, porn titles in UHD. Yeah, you know they're and uh, that's terrific. That's that's great. I mean, I think that we're seeing sort of what happened with Blu-ray back when I was at the BFI. So in the sort of mid two uh, thousands, is that 
the studios didn't really believe in the format or know what to do with it but besides just doing huge recent Hollywood blockbusters or something like that. So it was up to the boutique and the independent labels to kind of show them the way that no, actually, you know, you could do really interesting work and really definitive work in this format. And there's an audience for this. You know, I think the idea about studios and Forte UHD is that they're all in such a rush to just go streaming that they've really undervalued this format and what can be done with it. And there's a real, um, there's a real hunger for, for really great releases um, being done in this format. So that's really encouraging. So yeah, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's a good time. Um, sorry, I forgot what the question was. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was just about, you know, about transitioning to 4K. I'm sure that Zach is chomping at the bit to ask you about Argento and Tremors and how that, that was. Oh, yeah. do, you, do you have anything in particular, Zach? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Sorry, Zach, did you, did you want to ask about that? No, you're good. Um, I was uh, actually just going to ask this. Um, so when you guys put out probably, I don't know how many per month, I don't know, five plus uh, per month, how long are you given on a timeline for a movie? I, I feel like there would have to be, like, you if, mean when the you, story? When, uh, I guess the question would be, is there like a, almost like a pre-production process? Like you see what movie you, you're going to restore. And do you have like a certain amount of time to do a, a restoration and get that out? Yeah, I mean, the it all comes down to rights. So if something's available for licensing, um, you know, we get lists of, of uh, what titles are uh, available from not just studios, but like, you know, all the different licensors that we license movies from around the world. And we will inquire as to what the masters are because we don't restore everything we release, obviously. You know, some of, some of the stuff's been... Uh, restored already and done to a level that we're happy with. So, you know, if it ain't broke, why fix it? Or we may take on uh, an available master and say, this is a good start, but let's do a little more work with it. And let's just do a little bit of clean. Let's improve the grade. Let's get, let's have a little more cleanup work done on the master. Let's improve the soundtrack, things like that. What we're talking about, like from scratch, like we're actually accessing the film elements and doing that kind of research and, doing the scanning and the entire restoration top to bottom workflow and winding up with a new 4K or 2K digital master, depending on what our, our release uh, demands. Uh, yeah, that, that process uh, usually takes anywhere from between um, two to six months for a single title. Um, and it's the 4K work, the 4K UHD work that takes longer, just because every stage of the process from scanning to uh, to manual cleanup, to automated cleanup, to uh, grading and SDR and the grading and HDR, all of these need to create new 4K versions along the way. So you're, and these files are incredibly large and they take three times as long to, to render and to generate and to QC and everything else. So the sheer size of these, these projects and the data they take up and everything just demands that uh, they, they take longer because all these things have to be scheduled with labs. We're not doing all the work ourselves. We're not like, I'm not sitting here doing the, the cleanup. I'm project managing this. I'm supervising the process. But we're working in tandem with the labs that are actually doing the hands-on work. So I will, you know, supervise and approve the scans. I will review the, the material uh, that, we're, that, we're, that we're sourcing. I will... Uh, oversee the color grading in both the SDR and the HDR process. I will um, 
make checks throughout the workflow process and address any issues that come up during restoration that need flagging or special attention. You know, and all these things are, are parts of the process that need to be uh, checked and QC'd and, and uh, approved. Um, but these are facilities that uh, don't just work for us. They're also doing the work of, say, Criterion or uh, Studio Canal or uh, the BFI or any number of other companies that uh, that employ them. So, you know, they uh, they have to calendar our work. They have to schedule it along with all this other. So we might be working on, uh, you know, um, Cat of Nine Tails, you know, doing the HDR grade in one room. But in the other room, they're finishing up like uh, Elephant Man for Studio Canal. You know, it's just you know, all these things have to be kind of calibrated. So what I try to do is as soon as I know that we've got the green light to restore a title, I will go ahead and and, and get that ball rolling, even if we don't have any plans to release it that year. Because the best thing for me is to have the work done, have it approved, have it finished and sitting on a shelf. So we then have the flexibility about we can release it whenever the extras are done, the facts, all that other stuff in the process is done. But at the moment, I mean, we put out, a, I'd say between eight to 10 things a month. And that's twice what we did just two years ago. Uh, but that, in addition to that, we've also launched a digital channel, um, Arrow, uh, uh, Arrow, um, uh, the Arrow video channel. And we're, so we're, we're delivering not just for Blu-ray, not just for UHD. I was going to say DVD, but I don't think we've done any of those for a long time now. <laughs> um, we're also doing our uh, our online channel, but we're also delivering content to other digital platforms, your iTunes, your Netflix, your everything else. So there's a whole lot that the team needs to have and get through. And the sooner they have all this done, the better. But of course, just going back to one of your earlier questions, if I know that I'm going to be working with the director or the DOP or both of them, that we need to figure out when their schedule allows for them to oversee their part of the process, then that can play a, a big part in how we schedule this work as well. Really, I'm, I'm, you know, restoring like 20 different projects simultaneously, and they're all in different, you know, stages. So I just have to kind of, you know, keep all these balls in the air at one time and just make sure that, you know, if my attention is on this, that this is happening in the background over here on this film. So yeah, it'd be great if I could just focus on one title at a time and take that from beginning to end. And then when that's done, great, I can move on to the next one, but I don't have that luxury. So it's, uh, yeah. And when you, when you, and going back to another question, when you add a box set where it's, oh, it's not one title, it's 20 titles, <laughs> then <laughs> that could be, a, because that's treated as one release out of 10 that month. So it can be, it could be a handful. Absolutely. With um, the balance idea, so if you have something that's more of a mainstream title like The Thing or Candyman or Old Boy mm -hmm. or anything like that, or is there more or less time given for that? Since that, I know there's more to it, like the you know how bad the negative is, but I was just wondering if that is accounted for. Yeah, well, I think I mean it's realistic to to you know assume that our budgets and our timelines will allow for something that's a bigger title. You know, I mean because we release say RoboCop or uh, or true romance, you know, that we're releasing now, or saying these are big, big titles. So they have a they, you know, they have they they have a larger scale budget. They have a larger scale timeline. And, um, you know, limited edition release followed by standard releases. These are the titles that do really well. So they allow us to also restore, say, a very small independent horror film from 1975, 
and restore it. Now, we may not restore it with the same kind of uh, budget, time frame, and expectations that we would for, say, Tremors, you know, um, because let's face it, we're not going to make that much money off that smaller horror release. That's one for, you know, the fans, whereas Tremors is a big tentpole release that helps, you know, um, help pay for everything else. You know, so it's it's a balance in that extreme. And yeah, time frame enters into that. I think a, a smaller film might take a month, two months tops, whereas a big release like your Tremors, your True Romance could take four to six months by the time you're done with it. So yeah, yeah, we've been working on that one for a little while. I'm really pleased that it's come out though. It's uh, just a shame that I didn't get to work with Tony Scott because that would have been fantastic, but uh, couldn't happen. Um, as far as Tremors, this is more for me than anything else. Um, that's a top sure. 10 movie for me. So um, I've heard for years, and it looks great. Uh, that was obviously pre-ordered for me. Was that a hard process? Because I've kind of heard that the transfers of those have always been kind of meh. And, uh, oh, they were, yeah, yeah, yeah. they were. <laughs> well, the transfers were, you know, indicative of the kind of transfer process that they did 20 years ago, which was, Telecine-based HD transfer from intermediate elements. So the NEG wouldn't have been used um, on, at best an IP, but more likely an IN, an interneg. So you're talking about something two generations away from a NEG anyway. And it wouldn't have been scanned, which means every frame individually made as a file that you can treat individually. It would have been run on a Telecine, which is in real time, going over rollers like a projector, you know, going onto reels and basically transferred to digital tape. So, you know, it's it's more field specific than frame specific and you're just, it's, it's just done, you know, that was the standard for making masters that were suitable for DVD, for TV broadcast and not, you know, they weren't director supervised, they weren't director approved, they weren't restoration. They're just digital transfers that were made for purpose. Um, unfortunately, the first few Blu-rays of which Tremors, I think, is is one of those, is the you know the first generation of the things to make that format. Um, it just reflected that kind of lack of care and that kind of lack of a restoration kind of uh, you know. And 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 that's another thing is that you would uh, Universal was particularly guilty of this way back. They they. They don't do this anymore. But way back then, they used to just schlock all sorts of noise reduction on their masters, where the grain was just non-existent. So you're looking at the old master of Tremors, and it just looks like a digital sort of faux oil painting. You know, it just looks, all the texture's gone, all the grain's gone, the color is not great, it just looks soft, it looks jerky. Uh, if you actually watch the image specifically, you can see that it's kind of wobbling as you're watching it because no stabilization work was done. It's just a, you know, it's something that was okay for DVD, but it really didn't show off what the Blu-ray uh, uh, media could do. So when we approached it and we were going even bigger, we were going 4K UHD on this and we knew that we would be working with the director and the DOP. We just went all out and we, uh, we just, you know, we, we scanned the negative 4K, 16 bit. We had the director and the DOP supervise every inch of the grade. And we just, the restoration, we just really went to, I mean, it's a studio film. So none of the restoration issues were all that challenging. You know, it, it wasn't like scratched a bit. It didn't, you know, there wasn't any warping, any rotting, anything on the scale of what I've described on previous stuff. So the film material was in very good shape. It's just the neg hadn't been used since original production. 
you know, it hadn't been accessed for that purpose. So it was in it was in very good shape. And we wound up with a beautiful master that the director and the DOP really, really worked hard to make exactly the way they wanted. And with the advance and HDR on top of that, it was just like, you know, such a difference, like night and day. So, um, and I think I, I'd say the same, I mean, although we didn't have the original talent involved on True Romance, I think you can see the same sort of overall improvement. It's like a day for night because True Romance, again, still everybody's seen, it's still everybody's pretty familiar with and probably had a copy on DVD or Blu-ray, but it was an early Blu-ray and it was exactly the same kind of process, you know, not taking full advantage of the kind of workflow that can really be done for these films. So hopefully people appreciate the big difference there. Hopefully you like the way Tremors looks. I think it looks great. Oh, it looks great. It really does. It's uh, easily the best <laughs> best edition I've had. Um, and I guess it, working with I guess it doesn't look great if you don't like grain, but we we wanted to keep all that grain in the picture. So it's uh, you know it's uh, it's something that I still see gripes about online where people go, oh, so grainy, so great. Like yeah, that that's film. That's what film looks like. Get used to it. You don't like grain. I I don't know how much you really like film, honestly. You like my, you might like movies. But, uh, you know, <laughs> it's all about the grain, all about the grain. Yeah, you got, you know, that's that's the texture. It's like when you go to a museum and see a painting versus seeing a photographic reproductive print, you want that texture. You want that original feel. And that's what we, that's the great thing about working in like, you know, I used to work in video shops and VHS times and Vulcan video, like I say, and, uh, you know, we were happy then with what we had, but my God, we didn't think about texture. We didn't think about grain because you couldn't see it. You know, it was uh, it just wasn't wasn't a, a feature of that kind of uh, low res media. But the, when you when you have these advantages and you're working at this resolution, and to not preserve that grain just feels crazy to me. You know, you're finally able to really feel the film as well as, well as watch it. So yeah, I guess there's there's two more on my mind. But um, uh, you know, I one one of the things is if I look back, so I. On Reddit, just kind of for fun, I'm going through and, and doing what I call a slow march through Arrow US. So I've yes. seen the first 48 releases you did in the US, and I'm just very slowly kind of going through all of them. Um, and, you know, Arrow's introduced me to Taro Ishii, uh, Valerian Borachek, uh, Yasuharu Sabi, like, you know, like Nico, Master Rock, we were talking about him earlier, Jack Hill. I was so happy to see some of these restorations of Takashi Mike films because like that was kind of when I was falling in love with movies is when he was producing some of his big hits back in the early 2000s, kind of late 90s, early 2000s. So, you know, I have a special love for Arrow in, in thinking of him in, in those terms, thinking of y'all in kind of those terms, like genre stuff, horror stuff. But then at the same time, I'm super excited to see y'all releasing studio films, big studio films, because like you've said a couple of times already, you know, it's why, why not, right? You have the, the distribution engine to be able to do it, especially now with the Zavi or whatever acquisition, like you've got this big distribution arm, you've got the technical process to uh, to, to handle this, the restoration and preservation. So the, the question behind all this is, I guess, when you look out to the future of Arrow, is it going to be more and more sort of like a, uh, a a studio that's putting out the best quality of any film, including a lot of the big kind of studio hits, or are you going to continue to go down into like deeper and deeper kind of genre holes or, or maybe both? I think, I think, I mean, obviously, you know, who can predict the future? And I think that 
you know, 10 years ago, people were saying, well, videos only got another year or something left and everything. I mean, that's proven absolutely to be the opposite. And that's really encouraging. I mean, one thing, as long as people keep buying physical, I think it's a big part of it because if everybody decided, well, we're just going to stream from now on, I don't think such a thing would financially support our efforts to restore these films. It's, it's that audience that, you know, that buys the limited edition that, you know, that, that advance, you know, purchase and everything. And that really makes these releases successful that makes these things possible. So, um, but I think as long as people are um, encouraged and, and pick up the work that we do, I think that we're going to continue to go down lots of rabbit holes and our focus is going to be on expansion into other parts of world and genre cinema that we haven't explored before. So, you know, I mean, we're, Arrow, the production team is still a small group of people. We're less than 10 people, you know, so we're very close knit, but we all bring something different to the table in terms of our interests. So, you know, um, uh, you and Kant is like the resident uh, slasher, uh, you know, horror in the pen, that that's his baby and no one can compete with him in terms of his knowledge. So he's out there in the boondocks, just, you know, turning over, you know, turning every stone, trying to find who has the rights to this or who has this material or who can I talk to who's, you know, still living that might be able to provide me permission to use this, that, you know, and he's come up with some amazing finds. Meanwhile, we've got like Jasper Sharp, a resident, like his knowledge of Japanese cinema is pretty unparalleled in the team. And, you know, all the recent uh, Japanese releases that we have, uh, coming up and, and recent stuff has been, you know, under his wing. And you have people like James Flower, who has a big history himself with video distribution. He ran his own label for a while and stuff. But what he brought to uh, um, that film, he just did, it's uh, it was, um, not Over the Edge. That's the Fun City one. Uh, walking the uh, Walking the Edge is the Fun City one. Walking the Edge is the Fun City one. Is it Over the Edge that's ours? I get them confused, but the point is he went all out on that release and brought so much to the table that we wouldn't have even thought of to include. Um, likewise, Michael McKenzie, who I'm sure you probably know from his Jala work and his, you know, his expertise in that whole area. Um, he produces a lot of the extras as well as producing, you know, our releases and, you know, Bird and Cat and the other Argento stuff that, you know, no spoilers, but will be coming up in UHD as well. So it's, uh, you know, we've got a great team with all their sort of own interests that, you know, nobody, if nobody likes everything that we do, you know, like in within Arrow, we've all got, we're all fans and not fans of some, but there's this, it's a big church of different tastes. And Francesco Simeone, who manages the team, I mean, he's huge into world and art house cinema you know, he wants to do a lot more things like Brazilian cinema or, uh, you know, um, he'd love to do Bollywood cinema. You know, there are areas that Arrow hasn't gone into, which we would love to do if the licensing was available to us, if we saw an audience for it with us. I mean, there's lots of factors that have to come into it. But the point is, is that, yeah, we'd love to reach further off into outer, into outer bounds that we haven't done while still focusing on doing really great studio titles continuing to do Italian giallo titles and we've just done our police set doing more spaghetti westerns um you know I mean <laughs> a simple question is uh yes we want to just do more of what we're doing and just even more than we're doing currently so yeah yeah it's uh 
you know, a lot of exciting plans in the works, both confirmed and unconfirmed, but uh, a lot in the pipeline coming up for sure. At a super high level, just because of the whole like kerfuffle with the Django release, can I ask, um, are there anything else from the Django universe that we may be able to expect from Arrow in the next few years? I don't, yeah, I can't confirm many future Django titles. I would love to do that. I mean, Django was such a great film and such a classic spaghetti West. It's it's up there with the Dollars trilogy as far as I'm concerned. Oh, yeah. And to uh, to make the film, to give the film that kind of definitive UHD release that it had um, was such a pleasure to work on that. Um, we do have a lot more spaghetti westerns in the pipeline though for next year. So um, I can I can't give any titles away because nothing's quite been confirmed. But we do have, you know, how we're releasing them. It'll probably be a mixture of individual releases as well as box sets like our current. Um, I don't know if you've seen the Vengeance Trail set that we've just put out, um, but more along those lines because these are sort of westerns that might not be as well known but really deserve the restoration and the presentation treatment. Um, but as far as 4K, um, yeah, I don't, I mean, I don't know. Never say never, but I'd, I'd love to do other Django films as well, for sure. I mean, sometimes I'm the last to hear about it, you know, because the licensing conversation will have just gone on and on. And then I'll get a call and say, oh, by the way, we're going to restore this. I'm like, oh, that's great. Terrific. Um, TV is done. So, uh, you know, that could happen. Who knows? Um, but I mean, a, a good way to tell is is if we when we license a title, we're trying to license it for the biggest audience possible. So if something's available to us uh, for the U.S. and the U.K., then that's definitely something we're interested in. If it's available for the U.S., then yeah. If it's just available for the U.K., um, you know, we're less less excited about it just because if we're going to devote the time and the resources we want to be able to release in our two territories as much as possible um well the only other question i have is and i know this is not your purview so this is not to you directly <laughs> well but, that's okay neither was the django legal case that's why i didn't comment on that either yeah yeah but to the extent that you can influence it please have somebody on your team improve the U.S. website because I like <laughs> it's I buy, yeah. I buy so many Arrow and uh, I've just had to figure out other ways to do it. So, anyways, I'll just put a word in. Yeah, there. <laughs> I will pass that on. I know that it's it's I know that people are working on that as we speak, and I know that it's overdue <laughs> for a major upgrade. I believe you're not the first person to mention this. Believe me, <laughs> I I can say that that I have absolutely zero to do with it, but I myself. As a fan, as a consumer, I'd like to see that you know uh, up and you know, running in a in a more user friendly and and up to date version, just because it feels like uh, no one's minding the store lately. So yeah, it'd be uh, it'd be good if that were improved. On the on the other side of the coin, the the UK one's great. I ordered a ton of oh, stuff yeah. last night. <laughs> So there yeah. you go. <laughs> yeah. You don't well, need to send negative in. feedback about that. That's all good. <laughs> no, I appreciate that. That yeah. like that one's running pretty smoothly and and yeah, that one seems to be where our attention goes. But the, the US site definitely needs needs some work. While we're doing requests, can I request the Stephanie Rothman box set? I mean, while we're here. <laughs> Ooh, yeah. But I'll pass that on. That's an interesting choice for sure. Um, yeah, no, I'll I'll, uh, I'll pass that on to our uh, our licensing uh, guy. And see what the what the situation is rights wise. Perfect, uh, James. Uh, well, I guess before I do that, any, any other questions, Zach or Adam? We, before we uh, 
I just have one really quick one, if that's okay. Um, yeah, I'm, of just, I'm, just, I'm just kind of curious, obviously, with your sort of experience, not just with Arrow, but other companies as well. Is there any like particular film or project that you can like pin down and say you had the most fun or you're the most proud of? Like, true. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Well, I mean, Zombie Flesh you know, was special just because it was the first one with Arrow. Um, it was, and it was just so nice to work on something like that that I really hadn't done before. Um, and yeah, I mean, I was a fan of horror cinema and Italian horror cinema, Fulci and everything before then, but never a, an opportunity to work on that kind of genre cinema before. Um, I, I don't know. There are a few real highlights doing, uh, going, thinking back to my early years at Arrow, uh, working on just some of the films that were favorite key films of mine. Uh, you know, when I was coming up and learning about cinema, um, working on Peck and Paul's Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia, which I think is an underrated masterpiece of pure American, like nihilism and <laughs> just fantastic. Um, Really liked working on The Fury, uh, the De Palma film, uh, which I think is an underrated De Palma, a huge De Palma fan. So I hope that if we're ever able to revisit that one for, say, 4K UHD, that I'll be able to work with De Palma directly on that one, because that'd be a dream come true for me. Um, doing some of the Cronenberg stuff, just as a fan. Um, Terry Gilliam, I've already mentioned, because he's just so great to work with. Um, Working with Abel Ferreira, we've worked on three films together now, and Abel Ferreira is just such a force of nature as a director and as a person. You just, you know, you get swept up in his vibe, and he's just, you know, just a great experience. If you can take it, he's intimidating, but he's uh, <laughs> in a good way. Um, let's see. Uh, the Borov, the Borovchek stuff, as an art house fan, just to discover those films for myself, I'd seen the bigger ones like The Beast and Immoral Tales, but I really knew nothing about his early work as an animator and his uh, films like Blanche and Got To. So those are real discoveries for me. Um, um, just thinking at, like more recent stuff though. I mean, Tremors was, I was doing Tremors uh, and Pitch Black sort of simultaneously. And those were our first 4K UHD titles out the gate. And we just, we're, being our debuts in the format, um, it was really important that we did absolutely everything right and that we approached everything right because I figured that we had one chance of this. And if we put in a lousy first couple of UHDs, then that's what our reputation would be for that format. So it was so important to get like everything as good as it could do. And uh, and I think we achieved those with those. I mean, uh, you know, um, Pitch Black, which I saw when it came out, but I hadn't seen since, was such fun to work with. And the director, David Twoey, was great. And uh, um, yeah, so it's, it, it's, been, it, it's been a fun ride. I think that when I've been able to work with the talent and they have not only kind of met my expectations as a fan, but also exceeded them just as people is just such a great experience. I mean, I feel so lucky to be able to share a room and you know, be able to talk with these people. I, I because I'm 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 talking to uh, to you in uh, Texas as well. I wanted to bring up Toby Hooper because Toby, who unfortunately no longer with us, but while he was still with us, uh, we restored his uh, second major feature film, um, uh, Death Trap, or otherwise known as uh, Eaten Alive, and uh, it's a it's a lesser known film, The Texas Chainsaw. Uh, it stars is that actor who plays Freddy Krueger. Um, Robert England. There you go, Robert England. 
Um, you, you recognize him right away too. I mean, so it's, uh, but it also has a lot of other kind of roster of familiar kind of genre drive-in grindhouse kind of actors. Um, but working with Toby Hooper, I don't think it's the masterpiece that Texas Chainsaw Massacre is, but working with him was such a great experience because all he wanted to do, he wasn't of good health. You know, he was, he was, you know, his health was, was pretty low, but he just wanted to get on the phone and just talk about cinema for hours. Wow. And the stuff he wanted to talk about was Godard. He wanted to talk about Antonioni. He wanted to talk about Bunuel. He wanted to talk about Mizuguchi. He wanted to talk about Douglas Sirk. And he was saying, like, when I approached, like, you know, the Reds here, I was thinking of uh, Hitchcock. I was thinking of Douglas Sirk and Written on the Wind. And I'm like, really? I never would have thought. But <laughs> now it makes total sense. And And, you know, the things that can surprise you are, you know, these are, you know, amazing directors. These are heroes, but, you know, they all, you know, have love for cinema themselves and what their influences were can really surprise you. And in that case, I mean, Toby Hooper, what I got from that sort of back and forth with him was just, uh, you know, wouldn't trade it for anything. It's just awesome. There's a, I know it's, a, I know it's not a narrow release, but there's a quote from Al Adamson where he says, uh, I challenge anybody to make a better movie on the budget I had. And that idea has always stuck with me with some of these guys that were shooting on 16 millimeter because, you know, you kind of worked with what you had, right? If you had $10 exactly. to make a movie, you did it. Exactly. And I think that uh, Al Adams said, Jesus, how many films did he make? I mean, I don't I, I, I don't have a copy of that box set, but what are there, 30 films on that thing? Yeah, basically. I mean, almost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nuts. I mean, crazy. But, you know, I mean, he did it his way. And. Thank God, is it Synax or Severin that put that box out? Severin. Severin. I, I mean, thank God for Severin and their, uh, you know, uh, their dedication and the labor of love they went through with that. And what was the other one they just put out just recently? You're talking about um, Eurocrypt of Christopher Lee? No, not you, not the Christopher Lee one. I'm talking about the, God, what's his name? Um, the 42nd Street director. The uh, Oh, 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 oh. Um, um, uh, um, um, sorry. Uh, hold on. Yeah, no. I... <laughs> because it was it was an Agfa release. There was a whole thing about it. Hold on. Uh, uh, I'll find it in about thirty seconds here. This is good podcasting. Um, yeah, but but <laughs> no, just so one of us can look it up. Andy yeah, Milligan. Andy Milligan. Jesus. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. I worked on a, Yeah, I worked recently on an Andy Milligan release when we were at BFI for a flip side. But I think that's on the box set too because it's just totally definitive. Andy Milligan, I mean, Jesus, what a what a unique outlier in cinema. Yeah. Um, and one that you really have to be a fan. I don't know how many people are picking up that box set and plan to sit through all those features end to end, but you know, it's uh you know, God bless uh uh, uh Severin again for uh, doing the right thing by that uh that filmmaker. It's just amazing the dedication. But you brought up Agfa. I mean, we work with Agfa too. Uh Sebastian, our contact there is terrific. He's helping us a bit with this. Uh, uh, he helped us a bit on Bill Rubain, and now he's helping us a bit. He and, and the rest of Agfa team over there are doing some work on our on our uh, Shaw Brothers set. So oh, cool. alternate alternate titles and uh, trailers from all over the world. We're trying to get everything in, so mm -hmm. they're uh, they're helping us with that. So yeah, I mean, I think some people feel like these companies are in competition, which maybe we are to a certain extent, friendly competition. But you know, I feel like 
you know, from Criterion to us to Master Cinema, Indicator, um, you know, Synapse, Severin, uh, Vinegar Syndrome, um, Fun City. I mean, Jonathan Hertzberg's a really good friend of mine. So we're all we're all friends, you know, we're all trying to do the best thing. We're all sort of of the same mindset that we know that we're fortunate to be working with these films, have access to this material, and we just want to do the best work we can and do right by these filmmakers, you know, and uh, within the means of production that are possible to us. So, yeah. I think that's a perfect note to end it on. J uh, James, thank you. This has been fantastic. Oh, no. No, my pleasure. Nice to meet you all. And uh, yeah, thanks for your great, interest. Great, I appreciate it. it. Uh, we, we appreciate your time. It's been, it's been great.